Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I have a packed show for you today. Bush Nights, a new three-part storytelling series, kicks off at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute tomorrow night with stories of water and replenishment. Conservation group Bush Heritage has put together the event and I'll be joined by two of the featured guests, Bradley Mogridge, a Camilleroy man and PhD candidate looking at traditional approaches to water management and the wonderful Alice Robinson, author of Anchor Point and The Glad Shout. That is all coming up later in the hour. But first, she's the author of more than 60 children's middle reader and young adult books, among them Brinda Bella, The Red Shoe, The Blue Cat, One Little Goat, Midnight at the Library, and one of my favourites, or at least the favourites of the little people in my life, The Terrible Plop, to name just a tiny pinch. Now the award-winning author has been named Children's Laureate, and she'll be joining me soon to talk about writing for young readers and what her new title actually means. That's all coming up on Backstory. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I only know the cat is blue. He sits alone. His needs are few. His eyes are green. His teeth are white. His fur is like the sky at night. He breathes and stares and then he blinks and nobody knows what he thinks. His body shakes when he's asleep with secret anger, dark and deep. There's nothing, nothing we can do. I only know the cat is blue. That's the opening poem in Ursula Dubasarsky's middle reader book, The Blue Cat, a book set in Australia during the Second World War. Ursula can cover the deep themes in her YA and middle reader book books, but she also has a great sense of rhyme, metre and childhood humour in her kids' book. Things like, uh, books like The Terrible Plop, a strong favourite with the little people in my life. And now Ursula holds an important role in championing children's reading and literacy as the recently appointed Australian Children's Laureate. Ursula Dubasaski joins me on the line now from Canberra to talk about her new role and what it means to her and the young people she writes for. Ursula, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel, and thank you for reading that poem. You read it beautifully, and um, it, it, yeah, I was almost frightened. Actually, <laughs> you wrote it you beautifully. You've written in a way. So well, thank it's, you. It's yeah. really. I, I I wanted to start with that because that's actually um, it. Both captures, I guess, the complexity of the writing that you you really do for children. You're not pulling any punches with the writing, but also mm. the great sense of sort of language and play of language that is very much a feature of children's writing. I would love you to talk about that particularly. What is it like to write for young people? 
Well, that's a big question, isn't it? And you'll probably get a different answer every children's writer you write for. I, I mean, I know in my own case, um, I always wanted to be a writer from, you know, when I was about six years old, but I didn't know what sort of writer I wanted to be. And I guess it was a kind of, um, you know, the life's journey of discovery to realise that what I, I, I felt was expressing me the best in writing, I discovered it probably in my early 20s, was writing for children. So in a way, it's 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 mysterious, isn't it, why, um, you know, one writer writes one thing and the other writer writes the other thing, but it, it, it's something to do with it. You, you, you get some sort of intuition of, of what... Um, is is the the best I suppose I don't know art form that that um, you want to use to express yourself and for me it's definitely so it's funny I think it's something to do with what you're talking about the simplicity mm. of the language but the deepness of the theme it, yeah, it might be something to do with that I feel like as someone who writes for children you actually hold an, an incredibly important place in in people's lives there's nothing like that sort of early impression that books make on a kind of emerging brain um you know the words um and language and an engagement that you have with books when you're a young person is just so powerful. I feel as though I am in part the DNA of all the books I read at that age. It seems like quite a weighty responsibility. Have you? Do we ever think? Do you ever think about it in those terms? Well, look, I, 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 I do in a sense. In that, um, I mean, you're certainly aware that that childhood is a time probably even of. Very passionate adult readers, childhood is probably the time of the most sort of um, passionate attachment to reading. And as you say, those sorts of very, you know, almost extreme experiences um, with books that you have as a child. And when I'm saying extreme, I don't mean, you know, extreme horror, also extreme joy and laughter and, and just the response is, is, is pretty deep, as you say. And I guess, look, I do think about it in the sense that you do want, children's early experiences of of literature to to be i guess of of good literature you know you don't want them to um be handed a book that is i suppose lacks that kind of what you might call i don't know some attempted an enchantment that that so that they're no longer interested in books you know if, if i you know because there are uh, there's a lot of great books published and, you know, like in every um, field of endeavour, there's a lot of pretty ordinary things published and the pretty ordinary things are, are obviously less engaging and that for such an opportunity to engage children, it, it just, that seems a pity. So, um, I, you know, I, it, as this, you know, being the laureate now, my great role as children's laureate now is to promote children's reading and I certainly don't want to go around telling people what they should read. I mean, because I, I also feel it is very much a journey of personal discovery um, in reading what you want to read. But, you know, on the other hand, I think it's true that, you know, if, you, if you're pushing me, I, I would prefer them to read what you might call quality literature. <laughs> well, look, um. <laughs> I mean, the, the role of Laureate started, I think, some two decades ago in the UK and it's now spread mm. all over the world. It was launched here in 2008 um, and since then there's been an absolute um, who's who of the very best of Australian uh, children's literature Mm. representing in the role among them um, well-known names like Alison Lester and Morris Gleitzman um, Mm. 
Lee Hobbs, uh, etc. Just incredible names. Um, yours obviously very much deservedly among them. I did want to talk a little bit about the role and what it is exactly that you'll be doing because what you've just touched on is obviously you're championing reading for for children, and that can take many forms. I, I remember hearing an an interview recently about Enid Blyton, and um, and Enid Blyton pe- history has a very complicated relationship with her, both for mm. you know some of the very dubious things um, she said on the topic of race, and also you know the fact that her writing is largely considered to be not very good. Um, but one thing that that people kind of agree on is that if people are reading, um, it's kind of a good thing. Um, you know, does Look, that matter absolutely. where they start? What What is yeah, really... No, no, I'm, I'm certainly... When I said I, I want them to be exposed to quality literature, I do, but it's not in a sense... Um, because we all, all of us, even those of us who stand up for quality literature, take great pleasure in reading non-quality literature a lot of the time as well. You know, a, a, a reader reads everything, you know, and, and enjoys many different types of books and my mum was a librarian but I have to say I'm very grateful to her I was crazy about Anna Blyton and read it left right and centre and while I don't think she you know thought much of Anna Blyton in one sense she absolutely never made me feel embarrassed or ashamed about reading it like I think she very much took the view you're describing that that um that it's 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 about reading not about uh, you don't want shame to be associated with reading, like at all. I think you, you don't want people to feel embarrassed and children to feel in any sense embarrassed about what they're reading that it's not um, somehow good enough. Because I, I do think reading in childhood and hopefully in adulthood should be a very, very eclectic and diverse experience. That it's it's about being open to a lot of different kinds of books. And certainly children, you know, when you let them loose in libraries, I mean, they just wander up and down, very freely up and down the shelves. And I certainly did this as a child, and children do it today. And they'll just pull things out. Um, and in with that very kind of open mind, begin to read them. And um, they may then decide it's not what they want to read, and they discard it, and then they'll pull out others and others. And gradually they form their own tastes and, you know, develop, their own the ownership of their own reading, I suppose. I, because as as the laureate, you're, you're there to promote and celebrate children's reading, and I think it's that kind of uh, you, you know we all know the children that don't like to read, and it's about human motivation. I mean, children are of course human beings, and you might tell them endlessly, oh well, you've got to read, you've got to read, but if they don't want to, they won't read. So I, I suppose um, that's why I. I've decided for my sort of project as a laureate is to encourage your children to join their local library, you know, to get their own library card and and um, go to the library and have the opportunity of free access to all those books and slowly discover what they want to read for themselves and then be motivated to read and love to read. If so you, yeah. It, yeah, that was a bit of a long read. So I'll no, 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 it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to the recently appointed Australian Children's Laureate, Ursula Dubasarsky, who is herself an incredibly prolific author of some 60-plus books for children, middle readers and young adults. Uh, Ursula, your um, theme, as you've just been discussing, or your, I guess, uh, mandate for your new appointment is read for your life. Uh, I kind of love that, both in that sense of sort of read, you know, for your whole life, but also read 
to save your life in a sense. Why do you mm-hmm. think um, reading remains important? As there are many ways now for children to engage with storytelling. Obviously, uh, people talk quite a lot about the scourge of screens, but screens aren't all bad. I mean, why, though, do you feel like reading particularly is an important skill for children to have and an important experience? Well, look, I think... You know, if there was a referendum held tomorrow across the country and we all had to tick the box, do we want our children to be good readers or not, I'm pretty sure, you know, just about everybody would say yes. You know, I think the collective wisdom of society can see that, you know, reading is, well, it's certainly the cornerstone of all education and that it's, you know, also a deep pleasure. So it's, 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 something I think that, that we agree on but I think what we do forget particularly in the absolutely exhilarating and wonderful digital age of which I'm a, you know a, a great um, devotee as well um, that we forget that the only way to become a, a good reader and by a good reader I mean someone who reads a lot loves reading and is able to read a lot of different kinds of writing presented in lots of different levels of complexity um, the only way to become a good reader is by reading. There's no app to make you a good reader. It might You can find an app to make you a good speller or improve your grammar, but you have to read. And I think it's, it's true that um, it, it would seem that in Australia, if you look at all the you know, various kinds of national testing, that children do seem, on the whole, Australian school children, school-aged children, learn to read quite well and at about year three their reading levels are pretty good on the whole but it does go into a a, a rather depressing decline as they um grow older and i think you know they read less you know and um every single book this is what i've sort of been saying to children that including me every single book i read now even though i'm an old lady every single book i read makes me a better reader. It is a lifelong process reading and yeah Uh, reading is obviously a very important part of and promoting reading is obviously a very important part of your new role but I do want to take a step back because you as the author of of children's books and particularly books for young children uh, a lot of those books will be uh, have been designed to be read to children and I actually think one of the great joys that I have um, you know that I hold with me is that you know the feeling of being read to Mm. There's something so absolutely intimate um, and incredibly just it, this feeling of, of being cared for comes out of the act of being read too. Do you feel like in a way your role is is in no small part also encouraging parents to to take on this role in their children's lives? Look, I certainly couldn't agree with you more. It's a, a sort of, it is a beautiful and intimate and, and very bonding experience. I think that that is absolutely um true um it's also true that not all parents are sort of confident or comfortable doing that um although you know one would only encourage them to be so um i i think what you say about particularly picture books they are in a sense performance pieces that's how they're meant to be read really they're meant to be read as a you know when I say performance, I don't mean in front of a hundred people, but they are meant to be sort of read aloud. They're almost like dramatic pieces, and certainly that's how I, when I write for that age group, I think of them as as a kind of piece of performance writing rather than uh, silent reading. Um, look, it's it's 
all of those um, things that in, in, in encourage reading at home, I think, are, are wonderful. And in, in a sense, the, perhaps um, that's a thing to also encourage parents that who are perhaps mm. unsure about um, reading to their children. That's why the library is also a fantastic place to go. Not only are there, you know, thousands and thousands of books to choose from, but you can also go and watch story time and you can have how to read to children modelled for you, in a sense. You can just sit there and watch as the very experienced um, storytelling librarians read to children. And you can see that you can just let yourself go when you read to children. You can really perform. Absolutely. Um, you don't have to read every word. You don't have to, um, you know, if the children are... are you know, you might have picked a book that's a bit too hard for them to understand. So then you can just talk about the pictures and make up a story. Like you can use the book in any way you want um, to turn it into a positive experience, not a sort of punishing experience for either person. And I think also just to sort of, I suppose, go back to this art of writing uh, for children, you're also kind of really considering the parent. Quite a lot of the most excellent children's books have got little kind of, you know, little sort of nods to the adult reader there as well things that an older mind will understand that a younger one won't get maybe a double entendre um the best writing kind of really has that as part of it as well and I sort of note in your writing that sense of humor um that an adult might might kind of get another level of the reading or at least this very strong sense of rhyme and rhythm that um that you know is as much of an import to the child as the words that are being said um is very much a feature of your writing which you know, when adults are being asked to read and reread and reread something, uh, you really want it to be something that engages an adult as well. That's, I guess it is a kind of double audience there. And certainly you want it to be a pleasure for the adult to read. I agree. You want for the, And you want it to be easy for them to read. You don't want them to be tripping up on how it's written. So I guess that's what I meant by the performance. Mm. I'm very aware that there is a performer who is going to be um, reading it. And um, I guess we've all had the experience of young children who for some reason want you to read them the instruction manual of their, you know, uh, toy train or something like that and how unbelievably tedious and terrible it is um, and what a relief it is to read something that's been, you know, well written for the audience. Um, so I suppose um, I, I'm not sure if I do... I, I try to... I. I'm, I'm more aware when I'm writing is I'm trying to focus on what the children are interested in. So it's possibly, if in my writing, a bit accidental that the adults are also interested in or what you're suggesting of double meanings. Because I remember a, a good friend of mine once said to me, I was watching him read to children in, in a bookstore, and um, the children were staring at him with great um, engagement, and um, there was this sort of terrible door old lady at the back looking as if she'd never heard anything so stupid in her entire life and I said to him afterwards um, oh Duncan how did you handle that lady at the back like she was so depressing you know because you can really be thrown by a, um, a not very friendly audience member and he said to me I never look at the adults wow. and I really took that to heart actually whenever I'm reading to children aloud for example I only look at the children which doesn't mean I don't care about the adults but I think it's a kind of focusing of what, what you, why you're there. You, you, you're really there for them. And you can easily, I think, in both writing and reading, get kind of distracted 
by what the adults are interested in. And so I suppose I'm trying very hard to to really be inside that mind of the child, how they, you know, of course, you can never imagine what a child thinks. And you know, the things that children say in response to what you've written are always astonishing. So it's always a revelation and a reminder that, in fact, it's it's a hidden state of childhood. Once we leave it, we can't ever really get back there. Well, uh, on that note, Ursula Dubasaski, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory and congratulations for your uh, thank appointment. You, thank you for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. Uh, that was Ursula Dubasaski, uh, the recently, very recently appointed, uh, I think literally yesterday, uh, Australian Children's Laureate, uh, whose motif for her two-year term will be read for your life. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, the bushfires that recently devastated the vast majority, unfortunately, of our bushland uh, have really made us reevaluate our relationship with the bush, the stories we tell and the understanding we have of the complexity of the landscape and all that we've lost. Now, conservation group Bush Heritage have asked a group of writers and thinkers to offer their perspectives on the landscape in a new three-part storytelling series. Bush Nights kicks off tomorrow night at the Mechanics Institute, the Brunswick Mechanics Institute, with stories of water and replenishment. And I'm joined by two of the featured guests, Bradley Mogridge, uh, Kamalaroy Mann and PhD candidate exploring traditional approaches to water management. And Alice Robertson, author of Anchor Point and The Glad Shout, which uh, is a cli-fi book that sort of looks at an imagined catastrophe where all of Australia is flooded, which uh, is obviously something that, um, you know, could be very real. We've experienced the opposite, but, you know, just a matter of time. Uh, I'd just like to welcome you both, um, Brad and Alice. Welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you will be covering at the event tomorrow night. Uh, I'm kind of really interested, particularly because we've just been through, uh, I guess, you know, a big sort of, you know, heat spell. We've had the absolute worst that that can, I suppose, lead to something that's unprecedented and that, you know, we hope remains so in the future. So talking about stories of water and replenishment really seems like a kind of healing way to go. So I sort of want to start maybe with you, Brad, um, talking a little bit about the kinds of things that you might be discussing at tomorrow night's event. I suppose my point of view is that I come from, um, yeah, Camilla Nation, which is northwest New South Wales. We're right at the bottom of the Great Artesian Basin. So we've got a lot of springs in our country and we've got a lot of rivers in our country. So... Water is a key part of what I do and and how I think and how I am. So, and that's also part of my, you know, Camilleroy heritage and 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 my identity as well. So, going along that path, we're a old living culture, um, one of the oldest on the planet, and we're on the, on the driest inhabited continent on Earth. But we don't have a say in water. 
I suppose storytelling has been a key part of Aboriginal society and I think me having the opportunity to listen to some of the oldest water stories on the planet has been really exciting but also frustrating is that they don't get considered when we think about how we manage water. So I'll, I'll be talking a bit about that journey but also um, how we can actually use Indigenous knowledge to, to influence Western water management because 230-odd years, we haven't done it that well. No, we just very definitely have not. Uh, on that note, Alice uh, Robinson, obviously um, I've just uh, talked about how your book, The Glad Shout, really looks at uh, a great flood um, as one of the effects of climate change. Um, you know, looking at what Brad has just said about, you know, our extremely poor water management, among mm. other things, what kinds of things do you think you will be discussing at tomorrow night's event? Um, well, yeah, that's really interesting. I think I can't wait to hear what Brad has to say tomorrow night. My my work has been um, looking at the connection between the way that settlers have related to the land here and mismanaged the land in, and, and water in many respects and what that might mean for climate change. And so tomorrow night in particular, I mean, I'm a literary writer, so my the piece that I've prepared is... Um, pretty wide ranging um looking you know looking at anecdotally at my experiences in my lifetime of water but also trying to take a um, a macro view of um of water relationships to water on the continent um flood uh you know the history of settlement i've tried, tried to to cover a lot of territory in in the 10 minutes that i've been given but i think um you know the way that we the kind of the lack of understanding of of the land here and our um the imposed kind of colonial view of of water and and land and what that has meant for the way that we've related to the place where we live and and then what that means for climate change is really critical to understand especially in respect to water this is something for both of you and Brad maybe I'll start with you as well I, I'm really interested in obviously this is a, a show about uh, about storytelling and, and writing and, and the craft of that in why it's important to maybe use stories as uh, as part of you know really re-educating people about their connection to land um, obviously participating in this Brad um, and you know your area of study and research what, what and knowledge, what is it that you feel you might get out of an experience like this? Oh, I suppose it's... I got tired of everyone else telling stories about, you know, First Peoples' engagement with, with water, and I thought, hang on a sec, I'm a water scientist, so I should be filling that, filling that space and taking those microphones. So <laughs> the opportunities are numerous, so I, I, I don't have a very strong no muscle, um, so I say yes to everything. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for us. <laughs> but I think that the opportunity to, to tell science differently, and I think scientists are, are heavily renowned for not doing a good job at that, of, of, of telling, their, telling what is good about their science, what their findings are. Scientists can be, can be complex, but, I, but I, from my point of view is that using an ancient way of... of Talking about thousands of generations of observation and testing the environment, I think is a good. You know, it engages. Hopefully, it engages people. And I get to talk a lot in conferences, and I suppose 
got it down to a, a fine art, you could say. And, you know, telling those stories my way is something that I enjoy. And I suppose that's the bit that, you know, Aboriginal people need to take that space as well. We need mm-hmm. to fill those voids and tell our stories our way, not someone else telling our stories. And I think that's why, you know, this this opportunity to tell some of the stories of I've been you know, lucky to hear, and yeah, some of them are, are in the public domain, so I'm not, you know, I won't delve into cultural stories, but it's more about how knowledge can actually then be part of the modern narrative, you know, and we change that narrative to, to, to consider the way we tell, our, tell or we describe country as well. Yeah, this is really, and Alice, uh, I might throw this to you as well, because, you know, what Brad's raised is, is incredibly important, quite apart from the fact that, you know, the very crucial voices of, of, you know, the custodians of this land have not been listened to. Their stories mm. haven't been heard. And these stories, you know, if we're going to look at, you know, the evidence of the, the you know, extent of years of, of experience of land management, surely those stories more than any should be listened to. But this idea of literally storytelling, um, you know, taking the place or, or you know, or supporting um, science that has largely been ignored, the science of climate change, the science of, uh, you know, of, of better land management. Um, you know, I guess the other side of, of, you know, if you like, climate denialism has had a very simple narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. They've been able to use these kind of tropes or, um, you know, their sort of uh, way of telling a story without being sort of hampered by the facts. How... Do you think, what role do you think now do writers and storytellers have in redressing some of that damage and, and really engaging with, with those sort of, you know, stories, I guess, to, to reframe how people look at the environment? Mm, that's a really good question and it's one that I've really struggled with because on the one hand, um, if we're talking about fiction writing, you sort of feel like fiction writers should be free to write whatever they want and not have some kind of political agenda. But on the other hand, I feel like at this moment in history and culture, there is no other issue really that to be to be work, working on. You know, it's so paramount that some kind of cultural change happens so that we can protect, you know, our future basically and I think it can be very powerful one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in the last two years or so since especially since the glad shout came out and I had have had to talk a lot about these issues is that sometimes the directness of speech that occurs in science writing for example or in the media can actually be less powerful than some kind of allegorical or more narrative-based or metaphoric story. Like if you present people with a story that indirectly, like I guess it comes down to that idea of showing versus telling. Telling can be um, direct and straightforward, but it it doesn't always have an emotional impact. Whereas um, presenting a, a scenario where characters are in trouble or feeling things or saying things to each other and having an emotional response can actually generate an emotional response in the reader and I think or the the listener and I think that's so powerful and so that's what I've been thinking about when I've been working on the piece for tomorrow night that that I don't actually even need to use the term climate change potentially if I present to an audience a scenario in which people are being impacted by the effects of climate change, I think that, and that, I think that can be more powerful than just saying that climate change is a problem. If you've just joined me, you're listening to 
Triple R, the show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to a Bradley Mugridge, a Camilleroy man and PhD candidate exploring traditional approaches to water management and Alice Robinson, author of Anchor Point and The Glad Shout. They're both guests at Bush Nights, which is a storytelling series that uh, kicks off tomorrow night at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute. And the first set of stories are going to be all about water and replenishment. Brad, I want to come back to you um, to talk a little bit about the sorts of things you will specifically be covering. Uh, what kinds of, uh, of discussions do you want to bring up? What sort of stories do you want to tell about uh, different ways of thinking about water management? I think to, in, well, the way I try to engage people is, especially, you know, I, I understand the language of science and, I, you know, I target the way I tell my journey in, in science is to, is to my target audience, and I suppose it's it's something you need to engage them with. You know, you need to you need a hook to, to grab them and get them engaged and bring them along. And then at the end of it, you hope they think, "Oh, I need to look at that more," or "I need to go and go and ask Doctor Google about something." You know, so I suppose it's 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 getting something within people to to excite them about the, the topic. And I suppose one of the things I want to try and do also is move change the narrative as well that. You know, a lot of, you know, Aboriginal stories are seen, you know, the, the colonial sense, they were, by the coloniser, that they were myths and legends rather than, you know, mumbo-jumbo, warm and fuzzy. But I suppose it's bringing that into a modern-day sense and changing changing the culture of the way we perceive Aboriginal knowledge. And I suppose that, you know, whether it... I don't like the word validate, but it's, it's, it's moving from Indigenous knowledge becoming Indigenous science to then being you know, on an equal level playing field as, as Western science. So when you think about climate change, Exhibit A is that, you know, when the sea levels start to rise, you know, 10,000-odd years ago, Aboriginal people had, still have stories that they talk about when they had to move from their traditional lands up to higher ground because the sea levels start to encroach. You know, so those stories are still there. And, you know, you've got to think that they're seven to 10,000 years old and that validation to a point is something that needs um, needs to happen. You know, that same for Rivers of Fire, which is talking about volcanism in Queensland, you know, around west of Brisbane and, you know, I suppose great floods and, and moving moving country because, you know, droughts and, and I suppose the knowledge that is in all these stories that are perceived as myth and legend mm. are part of part of the, the modern day narrative of, of changing the way we, we value this knowledge you know because it, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a role at the moment in the way we look at you know integrated water management or catchment management or drought management or climate change adaptation or mitigation we're just not there yeah and our in our relationship as a country with you know obviously the the custodians of the land is very you know very very illustrative of exactly what we think about this place i think you know changing our relationship or changing the entire nation's relationship so that it is one of you know the nation learning um from the people that really know best um i do alice i want to talk about this as well obviously your area of research when you were studying your PhD and that led to the generation of your books uh, really was all about this kind of messed up relationship that um, mm-hmm. settlers had um, with the land um, and our rethinking of it. I think it's very raw at the moment for everyone that, you know, this kind of 
I guess, you know, psychological or cognitive dissonance almost that we have um, with how we feel and think about the land. We've, we can't ignore it right now because uh you know what we're doing is now coming back Mm. to haunt us in the most extreme of ways uh you know what kinds of things do you see yourself as a writer now doing where do you think you're going to go it almost feels in a way that your last book which was really um you know classified as 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 a a genre of cli-fi which is you know an emerging kind of climate catastrophe genre is no longer a kind of you know futuristic notion it's happening now Mm. what sorts of things do you feel like you're going to be doing will you still be working with fiction we've just discussed that that's a a strange relationship because you're an artist as well um what what sort of things do you think you will we where do you think you'll be going and do you think you will be engaging with this topic more? That's a good question. I I was a bit disturbed. I've written you know maybe twenty thousand words or something of the next book, and the the opening paragraph it's sort of set in Gippsland, which is where I've been living for the last four or five years, and um a huge, you know bushfires are kind of raging around the town, but that's not the central drama of the story. That's just what I'd written, and then of course this summer that's what happened and so it feels like you know some readers have felt like the two books that I've written have been prescient but I feel like you don't have to be particularly smart or switched on to write those stories and I would like to take the credit for it but I feel like um, you know anyone can join those dots and make a story like that unfold. It is really disturbing the extent to which um, it is being mirrored in real life. You know, some people felt that the glad shout was happening 100 years from now. In my mind, it was 30 years. But in actuality, you know, some of those scenarios are happening, happened this summer. And I have noticed in the cohort that I kind of, the circles that I turn in, these urban Melbourneian circles, that people are really alarmed now. You know, it's this last summer has sort of changed the temperature in the water, if you like. I think people are responding now. People are up in arms about climate change. And that's really exciting, but it feels also really fatiguing and quite scary. Well, to... I mean, the glad shout literally starts in a uh, in an arena turned evacuation centre, which is literally experiences that um, have been mirrored yeah. around the country uh, with people obviously being caught during the fires. Uh, it is it is a time when fiction is reality uh, and, you know, these are expected outcomes. Brad, you know, as both a scientist and, and someone with deep connections, obviously, to this place, where do you feel your work heading now um, and you as uh, as someone who obviously cares deeply about these issues? Yeah, look, I, I think it's throughout my career I've always been, um, well, I've tried to be in positions that can have impact and that impact can either be through policy or legislative change or, or a new way of thinking or, or a, you know, you hope for a discovery. But, you know, I think if I can produce something that is meaningful for Aboriginal people, because when you think about water, the way we value water is a, it's now a commodity. So for Aboriginal people, if they want water in a, in a river system or a groundwater system, say in the Murray-Darling Basin, they have to go to the market and buy it. And at the moment, well, as before last week, before it was, when it was really dry, you're talking crazy amounts of money and they're not going to be able to afford that. Um, you know, I think in the Namoy it was like $1,000 a megalitre, which is, you know, a million, a million litres. But that sort of stuff, when it's, when it's wet, it's around about, say, $80 a megalitre. So if Aboriginal people want that water in dry times... 
there's no chance. You know, they might be. I think that you know some of the sayings is we're we're dirt rich, as in you know some of the the land that we have access to, but we're money poor. So for them to engage in in a, in a water industry or a, a water based industry, they've got to go to the market and buy it. Whereas you know pre water planning, all that water was was theirs. You know what I mean? So I hope that you know we can sort of look at the past and sort of see what has happened to water. And I suppose that Aboriginal people need to be at that table when decisions are being made about water because, you know, I think part of them, you know, our rights to water are not there at all either. And native title, that's not, that's, that's not going to give you a right to water. Um, it's going to allow you to engage with water and, and be part of the, you know, it might be part of your cultural um, provisions in your native title determination, but it will not give you a right to water. And I suppose that's that's the challenge for us is that how can we, you know, change the system and to make sure that, you know, Aboriginal people have a right to water because at the moment we're, we're far from it. And I think that's something I'm hoping to influence. Yeah, that's really great. Well, uh, I wish I could keep talking with you both about this topic, but time has run out for us today. Um, I'm very happy to hear these conversations at least beginning. Thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Brad and Alice. Thanks, no Mel. That was uh, Bradley Mogridge, a Camilleroy man and PhD candidate exploring traditional approaches to water management and Alice Robinson, author of Anchor Point and The Glad Shout. Uh, they're both going to be guests tomorrow night at uh, Bush Night's inaugural uh, storytelling night, the first of three at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute, kicking off with stories of water and replenishment. And other guests there will include Tyson Yunkaporter, the author of Sand Talk, and uh, Rebecca Nelson, who is an expert, expert in water law and environmental law. Also, it will finish up with the wonderful music of the orb weavers so something not to be missed coming up to the end of the show today and it's been a great one i'm very happy to be back here i'd like to thank all of my guests today obviously uh the recently appointed children's laureate ursula dubasarski uh, and the uh, wonderful brad mogridge independently yours triple r 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.